Well, good morning. My name is Ken, if you don't know me. And I have the incredible privilege this morning of just introducing the series that we're going to start into, which is the, the book of Ephesians. This is a rich, deep, uh, profoundly life-changing book, and I can't wait to get into this. I'm really happy to be with you this morning. But to just get us rolling, um, I've invited some of the kids from the uh, kids program to come up here. Um, I went into their class a couple weeks ago and said, hey, we might actually be able to come into, into church with us and help teach everybody a song that might help them learn the outline of the book of Ephesians. So if you guys would like to help me, come on up here. You can come all the way up on the stage or up, up on the front right here. <laughs> Anybody who wants to come. It's great. So this song is ultra simple, um, but they know it a little bit, and they're going to help us with it. And this will help you learn the outline of the book of Ephesians. So here's how it goes. You're going to know the song immediately. It starts out just by going, sitting with Christ. And then you sing, sitting with Christ. The next part is, walk in love, walk in love, stand against the devil. Then sit, walk, stand. Sit, walk, stand. Okay, you guys ready to do it with emotions too? All right, let's let's do it with them all the way through. Here we go. Sitting with Christ, sitting with Christ. Walk in love, walk in love. Stand against the devil, stand against the devil. Sit, walk, stand. Sit, walk, stand. Okay, you guys think you've got it? I think they've got it really well. I think you guys are a little iffy here. All right. Let's see if we can do it just a little bit faster, okay? Go. Sitting with Christ, sitting with Christ. Walk in love, walk in love. Stand against the devil, stand against the devil. Sit, walk, stand. Sit, walk, stand. Just a little faster. Go. Sitting with Christ, sitting with Christ. Walk in love, walk in love. Stand against the devil, stand against the devil. Sit, walk, stand. Sit, walk, stand. All right, give them a hand. Thank you, guys. Thank you for coming, you guys. All right, you can go down. Have a good class, too. I really appreciate them doing that with us. And, of course, my goal with that is not just to have them come in here and have them to be able to be part of uh, their ch- our church, because they're a very important part of our church, but to allow you also to just get an introduction to the book of Ephesians, which this really is, sit, walk, stand. That is the outline of the book of Ephesians. Um, so open up your Bibles, if you've got them, to um, the book of Ephesians. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to run back in the back, grab a Bible from the back. Um, if you'd like to take one with you, that's Great, if you have any need for that, love to have you do that. It's page 917 in those uh, Bibles that are in the back. Verses one and two. I'm gonna put actually more verses up here than I would normally. Normally, I like to just have people looking into their Bibles, but today we're gonna do more because we're actually doing a whole book, kind of an introduction to a whole book. So here's what it says. It says, Ephesians Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, I'm a teacher. Who wrote the book of Ephesians? Paul, right? 
To whom did Paul write the book of Ephesians? To the church in? All right. Answer to number one is correct. Answer to number two, sort of correct. Let me tell you about that, all right? Most people who have studied the book of Ephesians don't think that it was written only to the, only to the church in, Ephes- in Ephesus, but also to Ephesus and the other churches in the area around Ephesus. So this is a map of the Roman Empire right here. A lot of people who study this think, this is Ephesus right here, that this letter was written to Ephesus and the churches right around here in Asia Minor. By the way, when you read in your Bibles Asia, it doesn't mean what we think of as the continent of Asia. It means this little section right here, which is called Asia Minor. Anyway, so they think that it was written here Um, And I'll explain to you a bit why this is, but my task today is not simply to try to talk to you about that, but is to try to introduce you a bit to our sermon series. And so to get you into that, and I'll get to why that is, and I'll get to the why it is that they think that it's uh, more written to all these churches there, we'll also get to the outline that is there. But first, I want to put this whole series into a little bit of historical context. Because Paul's writing this, he's writing to a church in Ephesus. I would like to do a quick run through Paul's life, just so you can get where this falls in, okay? This is going to be a quick run through Paul's life. Paul's born here in Tarsus. He was raised in Jerusalem. He's a pious Jew. He doesn't like the new followers of Jesus, the way, so he's on his way up from Jerusalem up to Damascus to try to haul in Christians and he is literally knocked off his horse by Jesus Christ, and it changes his life. He is never the same. Then you go into these silent years of Paul, and he spends most of the time in Tarsus, a little bit over in Arabia over here, a tiny bit in Jerusalem, but most of the time he spends it in Tarsus, which is his hometown, probably there. And when he's in Tarsus, a church, a multi-ethnic church is started in Antioch, And Barnabas is one of the people in the church in Antioch, and he needs some help. So he goes and gets Paul. Paul comes over to Antioch, spends a couple years there doing ministry in Antioch, and Antioch becomes the sending church for Paul's missionary journeys. Antioch is one of the largest and most important cities of the ancient world. So when they're there, Paul is speaking, Barnabas is teaching, there's some other prophets who are there. One day they're ministering, Uh, to the Lord, to one another, before the Lord, and the Holy Spirit tells him to send out Paul and Barnabas on the journey that he sends them to. So they go. Paul and Barnabas go from Antioch down to Barnabas' hometown, Cyprus. That's why they go to Cyprus first. And then they go up to southern Turkey here, the area of Atalia and Perga, and then they work their way up to Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derby. This is the area that's called Southern Galatia, and that's the area where he writes the letter to the church in Galatia. So he goes that way, he has a whole bunch of problems, comes back and goes to Antioch. At the end of the first missionary journey, they spend a tiny bit of, they spend a tiny bit of very important time down in Jerusalem, back to Antioch, and then Paul wants to go back and visit the churches that he's spent time with. So he goes off this time, with Silas and Barnabas and Mark head down to Cyprus. So uh, Paul and Silas, they head across this over the middle of Turkey like this, and they're heading up here. And it looks like they want to do ministry in here and work their way down probably toward Ephesus. But the Holy Spirit doesn't let them do that. Instead, Paul gets a Macedonian vision, and a man is inviting them to come up to Macedonia. So instead, they go up and they spend time in Philippi, 
Thessalonica, Berea. All these are short times, a bit of time in Athens, and then Paul ends up in Corinth, all right? Corinth is the first time on all these journeys he's had any time to just hang out and do regular ministry. He stays there a year and a half, okay? That's his first real long stop. All the other ones have been no more than a couple months in any of them. So he's in Corinth and uh, does ministry there. Church is started, ministry is going on in this area, but you can tell he wants to go to Ephesus. The Bible tells us he wants to go to Ephesus. And uh, I don't know if you've picked up any pattern here. Antioch, most important city of this region. Ephesus, most important city of this region, though the Smyrnaeans and the Pergamons are going uh, to argue about that. And um, over here, the most important city of this area actually is Corinth at this time, not Athens. And the most important city, of course, of Italy is Rome. Paul wants to work out of the major centers and try to get the gospel to go out. All right? You guys all following me? I'm just walking you through Paul's life so we can set this into context. This is his second missionary journey. He's in Corinth. So at the end of that, he needs needs to go down to Jerusalem, but he wants to do the work in Ephesus. So he sends his his friends, Aquila and Priscilla, that he's already been doing ministry with in Corinth. He sends them to Ephesus to get things started, and they hang out with Apollos a little bit. And he heads down to Jerusalem, comes back up to Antioch, works his way across here, and comes to Ephesus. In Ephesus, he stays there three years, or almost three years. That's the place that he spends the most time on all of his missionary journeys, more than even Corinth. Nowhere else does he spend a long time there. He spends a long time in Ephesus. So since he spends a long time in Ephesus, and we're doing our or uh, we're doing the book of Ephesians here, as written there. Let me just tell you a few things that happened there. Most of these happen in Acts chapter 19. When he first goes there, he, can, he, uh, he meets up with some followers of John the Baptist, and he helps lead them to Christ. Um, he spends three months in the synagogue and tries to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah. They eventually start pushing back against him, so he goes and he teaches for two years in the school of Tyrannus, and it says in Acts chapter 19 that because of this teaching ministry, this whole region here heard the word of the Lord. It actually says that in Acts 19 verse 10. Other things happen there. There's lots of miracles um, that are taking place there. There's a lot of spiritual warfare that is attacks from Satan and his demons that take place During that time, in fact, even the Christians who come to faith, they do a public burning of their magical books, which is a major statement that we are not going to follow the ways that we did previously. We're now going to follow Christ. And um, it's very interesting how the gospel is going out during this time because... uh, because uh, the, the, the church in Colossae is up here, right there. It's really hard to keep this still. It's right there. Um, it's founded around this time, and it's not founded by Paul. It's founded by a guy named Epaphras, probably someone who came to the Lord um, during his ministry in Ephesus or possibly somewhere else, but working out from the ministry in Ephesus. They're reaching all these, these cities that are in this area here. And um, right toward the end of Paul's time in Ephesus, there's a big riot that takes place in the, in the city um, theater. They drag in a couple of his friends from Macedonia who are traveling with him, uh, Gaius and Aristarchus. They drag them into the city center, and then Paul leaves right afterwards. So this is still the third missionary journey, 
And Paul decides to go visit all his friends up in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. And then he goes down and spends some time in Corinth and Centria right there and then works his way back through here because he's now heading toward Jerusalem. And this is his big journey to Jerusalem right at the end. On his way down, he spends some time with the Ephesian elders. They have a tearful goodbye on the beach and then he heads toward Jerusalem. Now, that's the end of his three missionary journeys, but still he hasn't written the book of Ephesians, probably. So what happens when he gets to Jerusalem? It's pretty crazy, actually. They blame him and claim that he took someone from Ephesus, Trophimus, a Gentile, into the temple precincts. Big riot takes place. Riots sometimes happen when Paul is around. They almost tear him to pieces. He is rescued by a centurion. Then he's put in a jail. They take him before the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish council. Big old fight breaks out in the middle of the, of the Sanhedrin. They almost tear him apart again. He gets rescued out of that, put him back in jail. There's a plot on his life that is discovered. And so in the middle of the night, they whisk him from Jerusalem over to Caesarea, which is on the coast, which is the Roman center of that area. And he sits in jail there for two years. It just looks like it's going to keep going on. So eventually he, being a Roman citizen, appeals to Caesar to try his case. So he's going to be sent then to Rome. Unfortunately, once he's put on this prisoner ship and he's going along here, they get into a big storm and he gets shipwrecked on Malta. Shipwreck number four, by the way. He's already been shipwrecked three times before that. And that's Paul, right? And then eventually... Um, as a prisoner still, he's taken up to Rome and he spends two years under house arrest chained to a soldier in Rome. He has a whole bunch of time while he's there and he decides to write a letter of encouragement to his friends in other places. And he writes a few letters from there. But one of the most important of all of them is the book of Ephesians. Now, if you are going to write a letter to your friends in Ephesus... Wouldn't you write about like specific things? I mean, it's only been like four years, maybe five years since you've been there. You're getting messages all the time. People are coming and going from Ephesus, major place. You'd write about specific stuff like he does when he writes to the Corinthians. When he writes to the Corinthians, he writes all sorts of very specific things. Talks about problems in the church, questions that they have. When he writes the book of Ephesians, that's not what he does. It is general encouragement. It seems like the type of thing that he could have written to anyone anywhere, actually. And that's one of the main reasons why people think that Paul is not simply writing to Ephesus, but that he's writing to the churches around Ephesus as well. Okay, Because that's not what you would expect if he had spent most of his time, more time than anywhere else in Ephesus. There are actually a couple other reasons, but that's the only one I, I want to mention. But now let's think about it a little bit more. Suppose you were going to write a letter of general encouragement to people there. What would you write about? Wouldn't you start out by writing about like um, maybe who they are in Christ, their identity, their position in Christ? And wouldn't you want to just help them to know how to walk or live in their new life with Jesus? And wouldn't you want them to to know what to do to stand against the attacks that come against them? And that's what we find. That's exactly what happens in the book of Ephesians because you've got the sit section, which actually teaches you how to actually uh, know your identity and your position and your authority in Christ. Then you've got the walk section, which teaches you how to actually live it out and 
the stand section, which teaches you how to actually deal with the attacks that are going to come against you by the devil. That is the outline of the book that we just learned from the kids who are here. Sit, walk, stand. Know your position and identity in Christ. That's Ephesians 1 through 3. Chapters 1 through 3 is the sit section. Walk, live a life of love and unity in Christ. Ephesians 4 and 5 and a bit of 6. And stand, resist attacks from the devil. It's Ephesians 6. Oh, I'm a teacher. Let's just see if you can remember this. So the sit section is chapters 1 through 3. The walk section is chapters four and five, and a little bit of six, and then the stand section is in chapter six. That's right. There we go. All right. Now, it's important, actually, that we learn a bit of the order here. This is not written randomly, but if you, you have to learn how to sit to help you be able to walk and stand. Perhaps the most important thing I'm going to say today is that. You have to learn how to sit so that you can walk well and stand well. I have a friend who lives a lot of the year in the country uh, next to the Himalayan mountains. He's a Bible translation consultant, but he also loves to hike and climb in the Himalayas for days on end sometimes. Now, do you think that my friend who goes hiking up in the Himalaya mountains, the highest mountains in the world, do you think that he just like heads out? One day he's like, I'm just going to go out. I'm going to spend the next like five, six, seven days up in the mountains. He just leaves. He doesn't, he doesn't do that, right? He sits down. He plans where he's going to go. He sits together with some of the friends who are going to go with him. They figure out where they're going. And even after they leave and they start going on their journey, they'll sit down. They'll think about where they came from. They'll, re- they'll reflect upon that. And they'll talk about where they're going. So their sitting becomes an important part of the journey for him. The Christian life is, is a lot like a journey, you know. It's a great metaphor for the Christian life. You're walking along through life, but you have to learn how to sit. You need to learn how to rest. You need to know your position, your identity in Christ before you learn how to walk and stand. But where did we get the idea of calling this first section sit? Where did that come from? Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 to 21. A little small on the screen, so you might have to look down at your Bibles. But this is where the sit language comes. First, it's about Jesus, which is always the right place to start. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the wisdom, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So the first time you see any sort of sit language relates to Jesus. All right, Jesus rose from the dead and he is seated, it says there, at the right hand of God. And there, that is a position of authority over all the powers. So after Paul's written all this about Christ in chapter one, he just blows our minds by moving us into chapter two. And he, he somehow applies this to us. It's not what you're expecting, but that's what he does. Ephesians 2, four to six. 
But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. All right, let me just ask you honestly. Sometimes when you read Paul's letters, do you kind of like, oh man, Paul, I don't understand what you're saying. Your eyes start to glaze over a little bit. It's like, okay, I was following you at first. God rose Jesus from the dead. Jesus actually rose from the dead. We celebrated this last week, Easter, right? He rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven. The disciples saw him do that. And I, and I get the idea of him sitting down there. That's like he's, it's showing that he's in a place of authority. But now you're telling us that somehow when he rose from the dead, we rose with him? And weirder, we sit with him? What is going on? I mean, it's like we have another body somewhere that's rising with them, or, or maybe this is some sort of mystical experience that you have, right? I don't think that that's what's happening at all here. I think this is, this is more of a theological truth. What it is saying is that Jesus rose from the dead. We rose with him. That is, we left our past life. We have been given the power to live a brand new life in him, that we follow pretty well, because Paul uses this, um, this expression a lot of times. But this is the only place he talks about us sitting with him. What is that? Let me just suggest to you that this means that so many things that are true about Jesus' place, because we're connected to him, we get to share in those right now. Because we are in Christ, which is all over the book of Ephesians, that, that language, in Christness is everywhere because we are connected with Jesus. We get to share some of these things with him. In other words, let me show you up here on the screen one piece of this. All right, what does it say about Jesus? He is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Does that mean then that if we are connected with Jesus Christ, then we also have authority over the works of the evil one. Yes, that's what it means. Because of our connection with Jesus, we have no authority over the works of the evil one apart from that. But it also means that we get to share in so many other blessings, the richness of living a Christian life that Jesus has provided for us simply because we're connected with Jesus. And that's why we call this section the sit section. It's another way of answering the question, who is over what? But it actually goes further than that. There are actually a number of things that were, um, that were said by a Chinese evangelist, teacher, church leader named Ni Sheng, from whom I actually I learned the outline of Sit, Walk, Stand. So actually I want to just call out his name. He was a Chinese evangelist. He did most of his ministry about 100 years ago. Uh, I didn't personally know him. I read a book that was compiled of his teachings after he died by some of his followers. Um, but um, he uh, brought about the Sit, Walk, Stand um, outline. I think it might have been around before him. But anyway, I'm just telling you who I got it from. But he made some helpful comments, so I'm going to tie into some of these. Here's what he says. Nee says, Christianity does not begin with walking, it begins with sitting. Most Christians make the mistake of trying to walk in order to be able to sit, but that is a reversal of the true order. Actually, Nee uh, talks about how Paul turns upside down our expectations that the Christian life is all about what you do. And he says, actually, the Christian life is all about 
not all about. It starts with, and this piece encompasses everything else, it's about what Christ has done. So you start with a big doneness, and then you go on to your do-ness. He says, if at the outside we try to do anything, we get nothing. If we seek to attain something, we miss everything. For Christianity begins not with a big do, but a big done. He also says, it is paradoxical but true that we only advance in the Christian life as we learn, first of all, to sit down. He just says, most Christians make this mistake. They try to walk, even they try to stand. Sometimes we even try to run before we've actually learned the process of sitting down. Now, this is not saying that you have to do these in order, like if you've never learned to sit, then you you can't walk and you can't stand. They all happen at the same time, like on a journey where you are actually doing all of those. Um, But uh, at the same time, many of us are trying to do the walking bit of the Christian life before we, and the standing part of the Christian life, which I'll talk a bit about in a minute, without learning how to um, sit in the truth that we are, our identity is rooted in Christ, that um, our position is in him, that our authority is in him. So I'm a doer. My family sometimes calls me the finisher. Um, a few years ago, we were watching the NCAA tournament, the basketball tournament, and an advertisement came on TV, and there's this, fa- this picture of a family, and the father's voice comes on, and um, all you hear on the TV program is says, I'm a, oh, my family calls me the finisher. Finish your dinner. Finish your chores. Finish your homework. And everyone's heads turned toward me and they looked at me. I'm like, okay. (laughs) So what this means is that I like to finish things. And that's true. I really do like to finish things. When things are really hard, well, what am I going to do? I tend to try to outlast the other person or the situation or whatever. And what do I need to do? I need to sit in the truth that I belong to Christ, that I'm connected to him by faith, that he's given me all these spiritual blessings that are talked about in the book of Ephesians that we're going to just be reveling in in the next few weeks. This is going to be a really great series. I'm very excited about it. I'll tell you that. I need to remember the truths, though, of the book of Ephesians to first sit before I try to walk or stand. You can think of the first section of Ephesians as the done section. This is what Jesus did, and this is what Jesus did in and for you. The second two sections, the walk and stand sections, are the do sections. It just flows out of that. The order really does matter. Now, just to help you get this into your heart, not just the order of this thing, but to actually get the truths that you need to live out of into your heart, I actually went through and culled a bunch of things from the first three chapters of Ephesians, and I thought if we could just say them together, this would be really helpful. So if you can see this, read these. we're going to read these through together. Don't say the numbers, just the words, okay? All right, go. We are called saints. We have received grace. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing. We are chosen. We are redeemed from all our sins. We have obtained an inheritance. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. We are called to a new hope. We share an immeasurable power. We are greatly loved by God. We are raised with Christ. We sit with Christ in the heavenly places. 
We are saved from our sins. We are God's workmanship. We are different but united. We are reconciled to God. We have access to God the Father. We are no longer foreigners. We are citizens with the saints. We are members of God's household. We are a holy temple. We are a dwelling place for God. We are members of the same body. We are partakers of the promise. We have confidence through faith. Doesn't that just get you excited for what we're going to be studying in here in the next few weeks? So we go through these. If we can get these into our heart and realize that we live out of these, that can make a huge difference. I had a college student a number of years ago who had grown up in a church setting where all she ever learned was doing things. So she, was, she came to Christ and she went into this particular church and they said, oh, you need to do this. And 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 then she went through a really hard time in her life. She went to the pastor and said, well, you know, um, what do I do? How do I handle this? And he says, well, are you doing this? And are you doing this? And are you doing this? Now, you need to understand, doing action, living it out, is part of the Christian life. But that's not where you start. You start because of your connection in Christ. You need to know this. Lean into it. Actually, the, the metaphor is sit in it. Now, our church, actually, Redemption Hill, has historically been something of a refuge for people who have been coming out of these sort of church um, settings. We've had a lot of people, and actually some of you in here are probably in that category. You are coming out of a setting where it's all about doing, and you've learned here about your union with Christ, about um, your connection um, with God through Jesus Christ, and living out of those truths. We need to learn that. All of us do. Our whole church needs to live, learn this. Fortunately, we've been, we've been hearing a lot about that recently. But isn't it ironic that a lot of times we start walking, actually running some of us, before we even learned how to sit in these truths? So we need to learn that. But there's all sorts of problems that happen if we don't. Um, if we don't learn kind of the order, the logical order here. For example, we get exhausted if we're just trying to run all the time or even walk and we never rest in this, we don't learn about sitting with Christ. We can start thinking that we can do it all in our own strength, even though the strength comes from the Lord. That's a problem that could happen. Uh, we can push ahead too quickly when we really need to learn sometimes to wait because there are uh, proper paces. And we can lose track of what things are really important when we walk through life. Those are some, some of the things but Paul does talk about walking, so let me just um, move a little bit in that direction right now. Um, before I get there, let me use a, a little bit of an analogy, though. You know, babies, actually, they go through stages of development. So babies, they learn to sit before they learn how to walk. They usually learn how to sit around four to seven months, and then um, they're up, kind of pulling themselves up on the furniture, cruising along it. Um, learning how to walk somewhere 9 to 13 months. Usually most babies, they're walking pretty well by 15 months, though some perfectly normal babies don't walk until like 16 or 17 months. But there is a developmental process here. They sit first and then they walk. Otherwise, there would be some problems as they're going along. They, they need to sit down. If they don't know how to sit, then there's a problem for babies. Maybe we can learn something from that. There is a process here that we need to learn how to sit. And if for some reason you learn how to walk first, 
Maybe it's time to pull back just a little bit and think about your position in Christ, your identity, your authority in Christ. These next few weeks will be a great opportunity for you actually to do that. But let's still look at some of the walk statements. Let's go to Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. I'm looking on the screen. Actually, I see it says 3, 1 through 3. That should be 4, 1 through 3. Um, this, this starts the walk section. And um, let me just assure you that the word here is walk. If you happen to be looking at a translation that translates this as live, this is the word Greek word peripatao. It just means to walk. It's the most important word of chapters 4 and 5 and the early parts of 6. It's a common way that people in ancient cultures would talk about how to live out their lives. Here's what he says in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. By the way, notice at this point, this is the transition point in the book of Ephesians. Notice that he doesn't just say, okay, start walking. He actually says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This actually connects the sit section with the walk section. He is actually calling back to that, and he does that throughout the walk and stand sections. Let me read a few, few more comments by uh, Ni Tuo Sheng about this section of Ephesians. He puts it really well. He says, this explains Paul's language here. He has first learned to sit. He's come to a place of rest in God. As a result, his walking is not based upon his efforts, but on God's mighty inward working. There lies the secret of his strength. Paul has seen himself seated in Christ. Therefore, his walk before men takes its character from Christ dwelling in him. So to help you with this, let's just imagine you walking through a day. Okay, and we'll try to bring in the Christian walk into your day. You're awakened before your alarm. Bummer, right? Because there's some noise. I don't know, the garbage truck is outside or a baby is crying or the apartment next door, they're making too much noise. And you're awakened, you're jolted awake. And actually in your past, you would have probably responded in anger right out of the gate, first thing you do in that day. Instead, you remember your connection to Jesus Christ. You remember that you are sitting with him and you, lean, you, you sit in that truth and you um, respond, respond with greater amount of um, humility. Let's go back to that verse. Humility and gentleness and patience. Perhaps you walk, you get yourself ready, um, you head out, you've gotten, you've gotten up really early, today because you wanted to go to the men's, um, men's group early in the morning or maybe some prayer meeting somewhere, and you walk in and you're excited about it, but there's the one Christian person that you have the hardest time getting along with already there. And so instead of being frustrated by that, you sit in the truth that you are united with Christ and you work toward maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Yeah, let's keep walking through um, Ephesians. Ephesians, the sit section. Now this I say, Ephesians 4, 17. This I say, and I testify to you in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So let's keep walking through your day. Let's just uh, uh, take you to your place of work, wherever that happens to be, and you go there and um, things are going okay during the day, but you come, to your, you come to your lunch break and you know, man, 
almost everyone I work with at my lunch break, all they do, either they get together with a few of them and then they gossip and complain about their work or they go off and they, they take their phones and they watch maybe a Netflix thing on it or they surf the net or they, I don't know, they play a video game or something like that on their own and you don't want to do either one of these because they are futility of their minds. So instead, you decide to spend some time with a coworker that you, you're trying to build an intentional relationship with, and you work toward a better, more meaningful relationship with this person, perhaps to introduce them to Christ. Or you um, refresh your own mind by spending a little bit of time in, in the scriptures. Something different. So you're walking through your day. You're trying to be intentional about this. Walking not in the futility of your mind. Here's another one, Ephesians 5, 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to to God. So um, walking in love. Maybe after work you decide to swing by a hospital where someone is in the hospital, spend a little bit of time with them, or drop off a a note or maybe flowers or a meal to somebody that you pick up at the store because you didn't have time to pick it, to cook it yourself, um, to the person as you're heading Um, toward home because you're trying to walk in love. Um, And one more example, Ephesians 5.8 says, for at one time you you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. By the way, notice that this this doesn't say you used to walk in the darkness. It says you were darkness. Like this infiltrated your life. It characterized who you were, but now you are not that. So walk as children of the light. Perhaps that evening you have some time alone and you have the possibility of doing something in the dark. And you don't go there. And the reason you don't go there is because you remember your connection to Jesus. You remember how you've already sat with him. Those truths ring in your ears and they help drive you forward knowing that you are in Christ, knowing that you're connected to Jesus Christ. And then you thank the Lord at the end of this day that he has helped you for that day. You stand in the truth. You are united with Christ. You stand against all the works of the evil one, the works of darkness, which leads us naturally into the stand section. So let's just focus on this for a few minutes. And I'm going to let um, our teacher, our Chinese teacher, Ni, um, transition us. Here's what he says. Christian experience begins with sitting and leads to walking, but it does not end with these. Every Christian must learn also to stand. Each one of us must be prepared for the conflict. We must know how to sit with Christ in heavenly places, and we must know how to walk worthy of him down here. But we must also know how to stand before the foe. This matter of conflict now comes before us in the third section of Ephesians. But let us remind ourselves once again of the order in which Ephesians presents us with these things. It is sit. Walk, stand, for no Christian can hope to enter the warfare of the ages without learning first to rest in Christ in what he has done, and then through the strength of the Holy Spirit within to follow him in a practical holy life here on earth. If he is deficient in either of these, he will find that all the talk about spiritual warfare remains only talk. He will never know its reality. Let's just look at a few verses from this famous section. This is Ephesians 6, 10 to 14. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore. Now, it's going to be quite a while until you get to this part in the sermon series, so let me just make just a couple comments about this passage. Notice that you are not strong in yourself. You are strong in the Lord. That connects you with the earlier part of the passage, the sit section of Ephesians. You're also supposed to prepare for the evil day. You do this by putting on the armor of God. And this this has a connection especially with the walk section that we've talked about. And then the third thing I just need to point out is when you face attack, you stand. You have all the resources that you need to stand against um, the evil one when he attacks you. By the way, you aren't, you aren't like fighting in this case. The metaphor is not to fight to try to take ground that hasn't already been taken. Jesus already took the ground. You're just standing in that ground. That's probably the metaphor that's working here. All right, but the main thing that I want you to get out of this is that you gotta learn how to, you need to learn how to sit first and then walk before you can stand. Many of you have stepped into new ministries in this last year, ministries that you've never done before, and you found out one little secret about that that sometimes people don't tell you when you first come into that, that actually when you're doing ministry and you're stepping out into an area of ministry, that you'll face attack. Things will be hard sometimes as you're going toward that ministry time. Relationships can be tougher. There can be um, people who are struggling with things outside. You might actually get sick more often. You might have your plumbing break in your house. That sort of stuff happens. Come on, some of you who have experienced this, shake your head. You, you know that this is, this is actually what happens regularly. You get attacked by the evil one when you step out into ministry. But that's okay, right? Because we are strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We know our position in Christ. We know our We know our identity is rooted in Jesus Christ and nowhere else. We know that our authority is in Christ, but we have to remember the order. Sit, walk, stand. Sitting with Christ, walk in love, stand against the devil, sit, walk, stand. I would love for you guys just to know this truth. I know that the leaders of this church too, they just, they long for you to, to deeply engage and come to know the life of Christ in you, what he has done for you, the incredible sacrifice that he gave on your behalf, how you are connected with Jesus Christ, and then you can walk in that. Let me pray for you. Perhaps the people who are going to do the offering can come forward too as I pray at the close of this. Lord, I do pray for each each person here that they will learn the truth of their identity in Christ, their position, the authority that they've been given. Please, Lord, help them to know this so that they can walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, so that they can walk through their life in a way that pleases you and that they can stand against the devil when they face the attacks against them. Strengthen them for Jesus' sake. Amen.